This is Ron Oral, and you're listening to the Activist Investing Today podcast. And I'm super excited today to have Donna Anderson speaking with us. She is vice president and head of corporate governance for T. Rowe Price, where she co-chairs the firm's ESG investing committee and leads the firm's engagement efforts with a myriad of portfolio companies. She was involved in stewardship at T. Rowe for a while, joining in 2007. And before that, she was director of equity research for Invesco Funds in Houston. And she is on the advisory board of the Weinberg Center for Corporate Governance at the University of Delaware, a place I love to go to for activism, corporate governance conferences. Thank you, Donna, for taking the time. <laughs> Thanks, Ron. So we've got a lot to get to, but I have to say I was uh, having coffee last week with a veteran banker in activism, and he told me that it's well known that many activists and companies come to visit you and T. Rowe in Baltimore just as they're coming to visit Institutional Shareholder Services in Rockville, Maryland, when they have a very important meeting at ISS, let's say, involved in a proxy contest or something like that. Kind of a must two-part meeting. Is that, <laughs> is that correct? I mean, have you had situations where you have meetings and then they go to ISS afterwards or vice versa? <laughs> we think so, yeah. it's uh, They're only about an hour down the road. And I'll be honest, I have counseled some companies in the past to maybe come see us first. And then go to Rockville because by the time they, if they do it the other way around, they arrive here a little bit grumpy sometimes. <laughs> that is interesting. Okay. So I thought maybe we would start at the 50,000 foot level and see if you could provide our audience a bit of an overview of T. Rowe's investment philosophy about shareholder activism. And I know that T. Rowe has put together a paper on this. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about it. It sounds to me from what you were just saying a minute ago that you will meet with activists and companies in the midst of a heated proxy contest if they're interested in meeting with T. Rowe. Is that fair? Yes. The piece you, you referenced, we actually put out several years ago, and we only recently updated it. And I guess I would say, I think it's been three, four years. What we felt at that time was there was space in the market to just lay out some sort of rules of the road. We just kept experiencing unnecessary friction, I guess I would say, in the process of activism campaigns and proxy contests, specifically around the game of telephone, you know, who said this and who said that, who's quoting us and who's kind of taking license by disclosing conversations that we may or may not have had with one party or the other, and just confusion about all the different advisors and third parties. We just wanted to kind of make a statement that said, you know what, we will speak for ourselves in these situations and we will be totally transparent with both sides. You know, if you're involved in a proxy contest and you want to know how we're voting, we will tell you a day or two in advance. I will say we walked that back just a bit because of universal proxy. We thought we might be getting into a world where proxy contests aren't necessarily run for traditional economically driven reasons. And there might be a little bit of introduction of campaigns that are really about PR or making a point and they're not really trying to win. And we, we just really want to commit ourselves to meet both sides in every single case. But the way I would phrase it is, yeah, if it's a core holding of ours and it's a serious campaign and it's addressing core strategic issues, we will always carve out time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so this update to the uh, paper kind of addressed that, that you may not meet with certain investors in a contest that's maybe not as serious as the kind of contest we typically see with these high-profile activist investors. Right. I wouldn't call it a major change. We just wanted to create a little room for unintended consequences that may come with universal proxy. Okay, super. So I suspect you spend more time on proxy fights than other situations. And I suspect that's particularly in situations where T. Rowe has a large 
investment in a particular company that's facing an activist campaign and pressure. Tell me if that's correct. And then maybe you could talk a little about, I see that you guys have these papers you sometimes put out on particular companies. Sometimes I've seen a few of them where they're involving like a high profile proxy contest. I saw one on Kohl's, for example, which faced McCallum's John Duskin and his director contest not too long ago. So maybe talk a little about these proxy voting case studies and how often they involve the activist situation. Uh, Sure. Not very often is the punchline, but I guess I would start by saying I've been doing this a long time. And the common thread I would draw, I think, is the cases where we decide to get involved are ones where we have a sizable investment, we have strong conviction, we consider it a core holding, we think that we have the ability to influence the outcome, because that's not always the case. You know, sometimes it's clearly in the hands of some other investor or some other factor. So we sort of put all these weights together. And then honestly, we have to have some sense of consensus within the firm. If the stock is owned across multiple funds, you're not going to tend to be too vocal and involved unless there's high degree of consensus internally. So when all those things are present, and we really think it's necessary for the interests of our clients to become more involved, which may include speaking out publicly or not, but to really lean into a case, we will do so. We'll spend a lot of resources and time. But there's just all kinds of different situations along that spectrum. The proxy voting case studies, as we call them, that is actually different. I find this frustrating, but there is a perception out there, it does seem like with Morningstar and the press and the external stakeholders that, oh, proxy voting is a black box. It's all a black box. And we don't understand how institutions you know, make their decisions. It's such a black box. We hear that all the time. And from where I sit, we publish all of our guidelines, like a detailed set of proxy voting guidelines is always on our webpage. We publish every single voting decision that we make within a few months after we make it, the voting decision. And in many cases, if we're voting against management or it's a shareholder proposal or something like that, we put the reason for the vote on the webpage as well. Uh, we do podcasts like this, you know, we're out there. We publish all kinds of public statements like stewardship reports and things like that that have tons of case studies. We do not feel like we're a black box, but we keep hearing that. So the proxy voting case studies are one solution to that issue. They are not meant to be a tool for activists or to illustrate anything about activism. They are meant to illustrate a particular aspect of the proxy voting process that we think has broader application or is of broader interest. So here's how we decided on this particularly thorny shareholder proposal of an environmental nature. Or here's a weird case, uh, Constellation Brands is, is one. You know, it's, it's not every day that a family with controlling interests and high vote shares decides to let go of that control and do a transaction and switch to one share, one vote structure. Like that's just a really interesting case and how we thought about it and how we got engaged. That's why it makes a case study. We do about 10 of those a year. You're right, Kohl's was one that, that was activism-related, but they're not intended for that purpose. So now I'm curious, I should read the Constellation brand. I'm fascinated when I see companies collapse their dual-share class structure. I just wrote a piece about a Canadian company, Celestica, where it's a controlling owner. That's a little bit different, I suspect. Onyx just collapsed its dual-share structure, or is moving to it over six months. So what did you guys decide at Constellation Brands? I guess I suspect you supported their decision to collapse their dual share or multi-share structure. And then remind me again, did you say that you put these reports out ahead of the voting decision or you put them out after the voting decision or they're sometimes ahead and sometimes after? Or just a little bit about the timing of when these proxy voting case studies come out in relation to the vote. Well, to be clear, the purpose of them is to illustrate a thought process. It's not to influence other investors or anything like that, so that we don't think of the timing necessarily as a really important factor in it. But they are published generally right before the vote, a meeting date. Mm-hmm. 
And yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, again, I've been doing this a long time. We used to never see this kind of uh, collapsing of dual class structures. I think certain sort of a sequence of events have taken place where I'm not going to call it a trend, but yeah, across Canada and the U.S., it's popping up a little more in our portfolios. In the Constellation case, we talked about how we engage with the company and it's not just a simple decision to do that, right? There is a process and there are questions of, you know, what those control rights are worth. And so we just talked about sort of our view on how we advise the company to go about that process and then what the outcome was, which I will say now was better than what we expected. Okay, cool. I mean, I guess it sounds like the the, the goal of the proxy voting case studies is give companies, other investors, a sense of how you view certain types of important votes and, you know, they can take the case study and consider it in relation to their company. So it has a broader goal, I guess. Does that sound fair? <laughs> It is. And I want to be clear that we're not the only investors doing this. So we took our inspiration, you know, this idea of kind of pre-disclosing votes or making a case study out of a particularly intriguing situation. Other investors are doing this. And so, yeah, it's for exactly that purpose. It's, it's just an illustration of the thought process, again, in response to the pretty steady drumbeat of criticism that we hear, which is you guys are a black box. No, absolutely. And, and I am fascinated by yours. And, I'll, and I have to say, full disclosure, I often go and read the BlackRock bulletins, for example, that they put out on various different things. So, but there is, uh, you know, rare occasions when T. Rowe will come out publicly itself in what I view as kind of an activisty commentary. And it seems to always involve a, a deal. And I know that there was an interesting part. I believe this was in your investment philosophy on activism paper where you note that we do not believe T. Rowe's role is to initiate activist campaigns. We have adopted an internal policy prohibiting our investment personnel from attempting to initiate an activist campaign internally, such as by discussing or pitching ideas to activist investors or other outside parties, which I thought was really interesting because you often hear from activists that some asset managers have requests for activism, that they're, they're acting on behalf of some large institutional investor. Sounds like that is not T. Rowe. But I have seen T. Rowe come out publicly on occasion, for example, recently, when News Corp was in talks to combine with Fox. And I remember, I know this is now a few years old, that you came out, I think, a statement in opposition to the Occidental Anadarko Petroleum merger, which was ultimately targeted by Carl Icahn. So if you could talk a little bit about what prompted the commentary in these two situations. And I'm curious if you think that that's something T. Rowe might do again, you know, maybe once a year on a controversial merger, or I guess in the News Corp case, it was a possibility of a merger. Well, you're right to observe that the situations where we have done this in this particular format have tended to be deal related, have, have tended to be big, potentially kind of game changer transactions for companies, again, where we have a core holding and strong conviction and high internal consensus and all the other things I mentioned before. That doesn't mean that's exclusively why we might speak publicly, but that has tended to be it. We have done this more often than the ones you've picked up on. Sometimes we've made statements taking management side, for instance, in an activist campaign. So it's been rare, but pretty steady, I would say, over the years. And these are just situations, they are outliers. And I would draw a distinction. These are not our phase. They are not us attempting to initiate an activism campaign. I, I do think they're quite different. This is sort of when we think we have a voice, when we think we have the right to speak up, meaning that you know we are long-term shareholders and intend to remain so, and we think we have a perspective that's constructive, and for whatever reason, we're not able to express it in, in the usual ways. Either the company does not want to engage with us, 
or we're trying to reach other shareholders, but in a way that we're preserving our ability to, to keep our filing status the way it is, or just for a variety of reasons, there are just times when we feel that the timing is right for the zero price perspective to be known in a particular and really important situation. So we're selective about them, but we don't think there's any reason that we should not use that as one tool in the toolkit. Mm, that's interesting, particularly in some situations where the companies are not interested in hearing your... I, did I hear that like in some situations where companies are not interested in hearing your view kind of in a private context, then you'll provide it publicly? I mean, it sounds like that's just one of like a half dozen factors. You have to have a large stake, all those other factors as well. But I think that that's kind of interesting. Yeah, honestly, these situations always surprise us too. But I will just say, you never see us speak to the papers on day one. When you do see us speak publicly, that is at the end of a pretty long road of other tactics that we have employed. Okay, super. So that's really interesting. This has been a really interesting talk. I want to talk a little about ESG for a bit and shareholder proposals. And you have uh, suggested to me that uh, you believe is a poorly understood dynamic behind shareholder proposals submitted to companies. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, it's, you know, that time of year, we're speaking here in, in April, and it's really just gearing up to be a pretty surprising year, I think, for environmental and social shareholder proposals in particular, and in the U.S. market in particular. And it's kind of like the black box thing I mentioned before. I just think there's a on the public side, not our clients necessarily, not practitioners, but kind of the general public has a view that shareholder proposal kind of means what it says. And I would argue in this market, it really doesn't. Most shareholder proposals that are brought in this market are not brought by folks you know we would think of as shareholders. The, the loopholes in the rules in the US around allowing who gets to sponsor and represent and advocate for a shareholder resolution, you could drive a truck through them, right? They're huge. So what we have is an institutional investor community that by and large does not participate, a retail investor community that is extremely concentrated, but quite active in terms of the number of proposals that they collectively put. And then the rest are coming by and large from NGOs. And I just don't see why it should come as a surprise to folks that shareholders with a long-term orientation and investors like us, institutions that want to hold these stocks for the long-term should not always find our interests aligned with an NGO whose mission is entirely different. It might be uneconomic. It might be you know, very specific on a company's practice. I mean, the mission of an NGO, for instance, that puts up a shareholder proposal might be companies shouldn't use animal products in any way. Companies shouldn't be in the extractive industries at all, things like that. And so if you're an investor in a company like that, and you have a shareholder proposal brought by someone whose mission is to put them out of business, we just are kind of making the point that we think there's a misunderstanding out there that just because a shareholder proposal is named that, like that there should be widespread alignment behind that idea. That's just really not how it works in the U.S. Okay, so that's quite interesting. Let's take that apart for a second here. I know when you talk about the retail investor, I think you're talking about like the John Chavedin and Jim McRitchie and these few investors that put out a lot of proposals. But when you talk about the NGOs, are you suggesting that a small asset manager outsources the proposal to an NGO and they're not really a significant investor? In the, basically, the NGO is not actually an investor in the company. They're kind of acting on behalf of a small investor and that they have very different goals than you know a large active asset manager like T. R. Price. Is that what you're suggesting or... So to be very clear, this is not me or my firm suggesting that we shouldn't do things this way or that shareholder proposal rules should be changed or anything like that. 
this is not me saying that there's something wrong with the process. But as it happens in this market, we allow shareholder proposals of a very different nature than most of the other markets where we invest. And so, yes, what I mean is one example where we differ from others is you can bring a shareholder proposal as a representative of someone else, not because you, your own organization owns the shares. So that's what I'm getting at. So an NGO can take a member's shares and use those to present a proposal. So they're tied to shares, but just making the point that the fact that Our mission as long-term investors with an economic focus and trying to use stewardship in a way that makes the company better and more successful over the long term might not always match up with the mission of an advocacy group that does not have an economic stake here, but really has an interest in a public policy type outcome or a business practice type outcome that has entirely separate from the economics. Just the expectation, because we call these shareholder proposals, the expectation that just because something is a shareholder proposal, it should naturally be aligned with our interests as shareholders. That's the part I find doesn't hold up. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's very interesting. And you know, the, uh, related to these kind of NGO-sponsored shareholder proposals, I have to bring up something that I had expected to see. A lot of people had said that they expected to see this proxy season, and now that we're you know into April, I haven't seen any of it, and I wonder whether any of this will ever materialize. Is the idea that NGO style or an ESG focused funds with very particular, let's say, environment focused agendas, we're going to launch director contests. And I'd even spoken to one of these NGO type funds who talked about how he had put shares in record name, which as Don and our listeners probably know, you need to put shares in record name if you're going to launch a proxy contest and you have to do it by a certain time. But we haven't seen any of these proxy contests. And the idea was that they would use this new universal proxy card which came into effect in September to drive this kind of social or environmental focused direct, you know, single issue director contests. And so far we've seen, you know, a number of director contests. They're just, you know, like the very typical Carl Icahn, for example, raising concerns about this large company's acquisition, which is not a surprise. And we've seen those kind of proxy fights before. So broadly, what are your thoughts about universal? Proxy card so far, this is this new rule that gives institutional investors more flexibility to pick and choose among incumbent and dissident director candidates in contested director contests. Are you surprised we haven't seen these small investors not launch proxy fights using it as some had expected? Well, I think it's pretty early still to draw any major conclusions. But the most frustrating thing to me about what we do know, what we have observed so far is the advisory slash law firm community, not all of you, but you know who you are, some of them, really, really scared companies about this and made it so that you know everybody thought that your local friendly environmentalist was coming after you to such a degree that the companies, you know, we could tell in our engagement, they were really worried about it. And then they, a bunch of them put in what I would call pretty muscular changes to their advanced notice bylaws which is not in our interest, I don't think, long-term. They went way more than they, the kind of the technical requirements, you know, in our view that they might have had to do. And so, here, you know, here's where we are. Yeah, so now everybody beefed up their advance notice provisions and got ready for the big, you know, the big event that so far hasn't materialized. I, I don't think that combination of that sequence of events was good for any of us. We should have, I think the advisory community, frankly, just blew it on that. And I do see a lot of them now kind of walking it back now that it's kind of too late. Obviously, there are some mechanical things or some tactics that are going to change with this. Our takeaway right now is universal proxy makes it easier or cheaper possibly to run a contest. doesn't make it any easier or cheaper to win one. Right. So we fail to see how this rule change translates directly to actual outcomes at the company level. 
Right. No, absolutely. And I have to say, I was at the Tulane conference not too long ago, and Leo Strine, the former of the Delaware courts, said that he described some of these questionnaires companies have been setting up as basically the equivalent of a colonoscopy (laughs) in terms of like just, you know, these difficult questions. And we are seeing a lot of companies uh, reject director candidates, say that they violate very extensive advanced notice bylaw questionnaires that they ask the activists to submit their distant director candidates on. And activists are suing them. Uh, I know at least three lawsuits related to these changes. So it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. But I totally agree, Donna, that a lot of companies were setting up these very tough advanced notice bylaws uh, with this expectation that there was going to be this explosion of single-issue proxy fights that would come on top of the traditional activist hedge fund proxy fights. And so far, we haven't seen it. But it does, yeah, I agree. I, you know, it's, it's early days still. Maybe we'll see something in the next year or two. thought maybe I could sneak in one more question before we go. And that is about the SEC's 13D rules, a subject that is close to my heart. I've been following for a, a number of years. And this is the rule. You know, there's basically this rule that once an activist crosses ownership of 5%, they have to disclose their investment within 10 days. The SEC rule is going to change it. The SEC introduced a proposal that would reduce it from 10 days to five days. And they also included more difficult group requirements, so much so that I've read that some large asset managers, some active managers, and index funds as well have expressed concerns that if they have a conversation with an activist investor, that they could, uh, based on the proposal, if it's adopted in the way it's proposed, that they could be lumped in together with the activist as a group and would have to disclose that they together own 5% or whatever they, they own. Once they cross that 5% threshold, they have to disclose it, which is, it seems kind of ridiculous if, you know, the idea is that it's kind of stifling conversation between asset managers and activists. If it were to be adopted, it would stifle conversation. So what are your thoughts on the 13D rule proposal? I think it's generally a good thing. Are you worried about being lumped in as a group? I don't know that we have any particularly unique insights on this issue, but I will just say when it first came out, if you had asked us then to give you the top 10 priorities for you know reforming U.S. corporate governance quirks that affect us and our clients, this would not have made that list. I don't think it would have made the top 50. So that's frustrating. It does seem clear that some change is going to be made here. I think we can totally live with the 10 days and five days, although, again, would not have been at the top of our priority list. But you're exactly right. I think what most of us, uh, my peers and I, are, are zeroing in on is the group language. It's just not nearly precise enough or accurate enough to reflect the current reality, the way it was proposed. Okay. All right. Well, I think that from what I heard from one SEC official at the Tulane conference, it sounds like they're hearing your concerns. And I don't know, we'll see if it's addressed in the final rule. I suspect there will be a final rule, even though the SEC is kind of overwhelmed with their created a, a dozens of SEC rule proposals that they're busily working on. So it's not clear that this is a big priority, but it does sound like they will get this one adopted in the next year or so. Okay, we are out of time. And uh, this has been Ron Oral. You've been listening to the Activist Investment Today podcast. And I've been speaking to Donna Anderson of T. Rowe Price. Thanks, Donna, for taking the time. Thank you, Ron.